0: This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The true facts of atomic energy and its implications should be placed before the country. Discussion and expert knowledge and viewpoints of different groups will enable a policy to be shaped. The publication of government plans and programs evokes a good deal of public discussions. It is important to note that both the UK government and the US government invite such discussions and are not really afraid to face criticisms. These always help the governments to correct their mistakes and to change or modify their plans so as to operate more efficiently and for broader and clearer goals. Evidence of such criticisms can be found in each issue of Atomic Scientists' News, that was Professor Meghnad Saha writing to Jawaharlal Nehru on November 11, 1953. Saha argued for an open and university based research program for the development of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. He was statefastly opposed to the Atomic Energy Commission because, and I quote, it had enveloped itself in a cloud of secrecy. Unquote. In a confidential memorandum to Nehru, Saha said that India had hardly any information to keep back from foreign countries. And I quote again there should be nothing to keep back from Indian scientists and experts who can actually be helpful. Unquote. This was especially so because the government had insisted and I quote, that it had no intention of developing atomic energy for military purposes. Secrecy has prevented us from having a correct atomic policy, unquote. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is episode 3 of Atomic India, our special series on the history of nuclear energy research in India. In the last episode, I talked about the institutional foundations of India's Atomic Energy Program. In this episode, I'll be talking about the progress of atomic energy research in India in its early phase. Now, this phase revolved around the development of nuclear reactors. Let us call it a time to react. So, We saw that secrecy and absolute control of the state were the two characteristic features of the peaceful Indian nuclear program. However, these restrictions were not resented at all, largely, generally speaking. On the contrary, the political elite virtually welcomed these secrecy. Atomic energy received a great deal of legitimacy and public support. There seemed very little doubt in the public mind that the atomic scientists were up to something great. It was also understood that this progress uh, in this particular field would come slowly and that atomic energy was something for the future. Now, if the atomic or nuclear scientists had received unanimous support from the newly independent Indian state led by the Prime Minister, and the public in general, the road ahead did not exactly appear rosy. They always appeared to be walking against time. Urgency was the most definitive drive and this conditioned almost every decision they would make. One of the reasons for their relatively slow progress um, was the time it was taking for them to build a nuclear reactor. Let me offer a bit of a background here. Meghnad Saha, you've heard about Meghnad Saha's uh, letter to Nehru in the beginning. Saha um, had been, as a matter of fact, India's most influential nuclear scientist until Homi Bhabha returned, which was during the Second World War. Saha was both nationalist, socialist, and strongly favored a privileged role of science for development. He also enjoyed easy access to Nehru, probably on account of the convergence of their ideas. However, Shah's influence began to decline following the appearance of Baba in a leadership position, as did his access also to Nehru. He was marginalized, uh, especially in the Atomic Energy Research Establishment, which uh, ironically had been his specialization. It hurt him the hardest, really, that he was removed from a leadership position precisely when India had followed the direction in advanced nuclear research that he had been recommending for years. He was upset particularly by the shroud of secrecy, which now governed atomic research in India. There was no platform, none at all. ...in which the decisions by the Atomic Energy Research Establishment could be questioned or even debated. Saha was not an ordinary man. He found a way. He managed to win a Lok Sabha seat as an independent candidate... ...and made a series of critical observations on India's nuclear strategies. These observations were not really made uh, in the Lok Sabha... ...but as editorial um, in the journal Science and Culture, which he led... Most specifically, he believed that the strategies to build a nuclear reactor were wrong. The Atomic Energy Commission had projected, for example, in 1948, that it would be able to build an indigenous reactor by 1952 or 53. As a matter of fact, they were nowhere close to building such a reactor, even by 1954. So Saha virtually forced his criticism that is, virtually forced the Atomic Energy Establishment to organize an important public conference on India's nuclear research progress in 1954. However, the establishment scientists comfortably dodged his challenge. They revealed very few details in that conference. As a matter of fact, the conference virtually reaffirmed the total control of the state and the Vaba camp, as it were, on the direction of nuclear research in India. However, Saha's criticism was not to be taken lightly. It placed the atomic scientists under some amount of pressure. Mind you, he was no ordinary critique. His credentials as a nationalist, a socialist, or as a high-caliber scientist could not be challenged. So they had to build a reactor now. The urgency to build a reactor would eventually force them to swallow their pride and open themselves up for international collaboration and scrutiny. Now, really, it's impossible to underestimate the magnitude of the challenge. Please understand that creating the conditions for an Indian atomic energy establishment with legal protocols Uh, massive funding or bureaucratic insulation was only the first step, the initial step. Now, the atomic scientists, of course, were immune from the scrutiny of the state, civil society or the general public. But for the state of affairs to persist and to preempt criticism of the kind that uh, came from Professor Saha, they had to set up ...the technological infrastructure to actually produce atomic energy. That meant that they had to set up a nuclear reactor in India at the earliest. Now, how was that to be done? Well, the theory of atomic fission was no secret... ...and some experiments in nuclear physics had already been carried out in India. However, producing an indigenous reactor that is, a reactor based completely on technology developed in India and by Indian scientists in the near future, was simply beyond the immediate capacity of the Indian nuclear establishment. It was small in size and it lacked practical experience in reactor fabrication. According to some estimates, it would take nearly two decades for them to forge the domestic technology to build and assemble a reactor or its component parts, such as fuel rods, control systems, or engineering fabrication. Two long decades. So, the atomic energy scientists in India now decided to adopt a pragmatic approach. It made sense now to them to decide to import the know-how for an atomic reactor from countries which had already made them. There was no need, as it were, to reinvent the atomic will in India all over again. All we had to do was agree to sell some rare earth minerals, such as thorium, beryllium, or even manganese. And they were lucky. The negotiations could be conducted with utmost secrecy, since the Nuclear Energy Research Establishment did not anymore have to face any serious public scrutiny. Now, necessary laws were already in place. For example, um, I said this before, the 1948 Atomic Energy Act had already provided for absolute state ownership of all substances that were or could be used to produce nuclear energy. Santiswaru Bhatnagar, a close friend of Baba, was at that point of time a member of the Atomic Energy Commission and also the senior most bureaucrat in the Ministry of Natural Resources and Scientific Research, which was in charge of all mineral extractions. Moreover, the Cold War conditions made it slightly more propitious for Indian negotiators. Both the superpowers were looking at the third world countries as a zero-sum game. Now, Bhabha took full advantage of this condition. For example, there's this 1952 letter by Bhabha in his capacity as the chairman of uh, Indian Atomic Energy Commission to his counterpart in the U.S., uh, Gordon Dean. Bhabha asks outright, and I quote, for all declassified information on reactor theory, design and technology, unquote. The American strategic desire to stockpile, to make a a stock, a reserve of clear minerals in the world in case of another prolonged international conflict meant that there was nearly always a demand for some of the raw materials which India was offering in trade, especially for thorium. Now, the United States was also concerned that India should not develop to close a relation with the the USSR, the Soviet Russians. The Department of Defense in the U.S. was interested in obtaining some Indian rare earth materials and they were not even averse to helping India to build a processing plant. In fact, they even allocated uh, 1.4 million U.S. dollars from contingency funds for such a purpose. Now, make no mistake, the U.S. was not really actively interested in helping the Indians to develop an atomic energy program. They were not, certainly not. Their primary concern was that the Indian rare earth materials should not reach the USSR. What were they thinking? Most probably, the U.S. authorities believed that India simply did not have at that stage the wherewithal, the technology, the resources to build an independent nuclear energy program for decades to come. The U.S. authorities, in other words, were underestimating India's capability to build a reactor or even a a nuclear energy program for for years, decades to come. Now, um, there was another international development about uh, atomic energy research, which made it slightly hard for India to approach other countries for nuclear know-how. Now, here too, you need a little bit of a background. Um, International cooperation in atomic energy research was extremely common before the Second World War. But after the war, America developed an obsession with monopolizing or controlling atomic energy production in the whole world. Um, This is between 1945, roughly, to 1954, the 10 years after the Second World War. So um, obviously, even its allies, such as France, Britain, or Canada, would not submit to such demands. It goes without saying that USSR would be the last country to bear with such American posturing. But there was a side effect to this lack of international cooperation. Every country which eventually built a nuclear breeder reactor had to work out its own unique independent designs. For example, the French developed gas-cooled natural uranium reactors. The Canadians built a family of heavy water moderated natural uranium reactors. The US and the USSR specialized in enriched uranium light water reactors, and that was driven in some part by the needs of their nuclear submarine programs. What did it mean? It meant that if a country wished to seek international help or know-how to build a nuclear reactor, it could seek help from only one of these nuclear countries, since the components of their respective reactors were incompatible with their counterparts elsewhere. You simply did not have the option to shop for separate components from different countries. Nonetheless, India did open negotiations with Britain and France about possible assistance to build a nuclear reactor. From the early 1950s, Britain was drifting into a closer relationship with India on atomic energy. Now, this drift was not altogether unconscious or accidental. Homi Baba was dealing with former mentors at Cambridge and former colleagues, especially Sir John Cockcroft. Now, Cockcroft he had gotten to know during his time at uh, the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Cockcroft was now in charge of the, the UK Atomic Energy Authority's main facility at Harwell. Now, John Cockcroft, Lord Tizard and Edwin Plowden were the most senior scientific advisors to the post war British government. They were all in favor of helping Baba and the Indian Atomic Energy Project. So, by the mid 1950s, driven partly by the challenge from Meghnad Saha, Baba's request for technical assistance and collaboration had a more precise focus. He needed British help to build a nuclear reactor as soon as possible to counter this domestic opposition and to fulfill the Atomic Energy Commission's stated objectives. Now, there's this is interesting later, um, 23rd of September, 1954, John Cockcroft asked, and he asked Baba, and I quote, Have you considered the possibility of building a research reactor of the swimming pool type? They require, of course, enriched uranium, but it is possible that this could be made available to you from the UK, Baba jumped at this possibility. He replied at once, and I quote, We would gladly consider this possibility. I'd like to know how much enriched uranium it would be possible to make available, and the terms and conditions, including time schedules under which it could be made available time element is very important since we'd like to undertake such a reactor if it could be set up in a very short time so we have something to work with while our other plants mature Unquote. the details were negotiated over the next few months quite quite sharply and quickly baba got not only 6 kilograms of enriched uranium fuel rods from the uk but also detailed engineering drawings and other technical data all the British got in return was a promise that the Atomic Energy Commission, Indian Atomic Energy Commission would look very favorably at purchasing a British reactor in the near future. The Atomic Energy Commission engineers now swung into action and began work on the swimming pool reactor round the clock. Homi Baba had made a bet with John Cockcroft that the Indian reactor would be ready in one year. The one megawatt swimming pool reactor, later called Apsara, finally went critical on 4th August 1956, after a number of slowdowns and difficulties in the final stages. Baba, unfortunately, had lost the bet by a few days. He offered to take Cockroft out to dinner in Paris, unless he preferred it paid in London. But of course, whether or not Vava lost the bait did not matter. That was a fairly proud moment. So, the Atomic Energy Agency now had built a walking atomic reactor. It was their first test of success, and the atomic scientists were jubilant. Finally, in their own eyes, they were a force to reckon with. The first person to know of their accomplishment was the Prime Minister. Even at this moment of scientific achievement, the Atomic Energy Agency could not but see this event in political terms. They could now be sure that domestic critics would have to cease their carping about the state of progress in the Indian Atomic Energy Program. Unfortunately, Professor Meghnad Saha was no longer alive. The predominantly political interpretation of this event continued as news of the reactor's criticality became public. It was repeatedly pointed out that this was, and I quote, the first atomic reactor to grow critical in Asia, that is other than the Soviet Union. Clearly, the message was that India had stolen a march over China. The only other Asian country which was remotely in a position to develop. A nuclear program finally it is impossible not to see how all through the representation of this event the publicity of this event the reactor is presented as a purely indigenous affair it was nothing of that sort even though it was admitted that the fuel rods and essential electronic bulbs and some associated components were imported as a matter of fact um, it was not publicly admitted that plants, drawings and all-important fuel rods had been imported. These details were lost in the shuffle of national pride. Apsara was represented in the domestic media as an Indian reactor, built with local ingenuity and local expertise. The first challenge had been met. Yet, given the manner in which it was put together, It was clear that Atomic Energy Commission had not yet developed any indigenous capacity to build a nuclear reactor entirely on its own. As a matter of fact, the Opsara reactor was a small research reactor. It was useful for conducting minor scientific experiments and gaining some reactor maintenance expertise. But it was a long way from providing the base On which a nuclear power industry could be developed. For that, the Indian scientists needed to build or obtain a nuclear power reactor. That system was many times larger than a research reactor and far more complex to maintain and run efficiently. At this point, the Indian atomic community did not have the experience or expertise to produce such a reactor indigenously. But India got lucky, primarily since the U.S. had by now understood that it was impossible to impose effective control over nuclear energy production everywhere. By the early 1950s, the U.S. had unveiled the Atoms for Peace programs. This would come later, but uh, I'm getting into a bit of a background. By the early 1950s, the U.S. had understood that it could no longer control atomic energy production everywhere. So it had to change the policy or its policy towards the rest of the world about nuclear energy. The objective of the new policy of the U.S. was both non-proliferation of atomic weapons and the launch of an international civilian nuclear power industry. One of the most important outcomes of this new attitude of the U.S. towards atomic energy was the suggestion to hold an international conference on its peaceful uses. Professor Meghnad Saha would be very happy to hear this, but she was no longer around. Even though atomic energy had so far been associated with destruction, the bomb, this conference was meant to represent one of the first steps towards convincing the international community that atomic energy could also potentially transform the human condition in vastly positive ways. In order to ensure that parochial interests did not drive this international conference or derail its proceedings, there was a proposal that it should be held under the auspices of the United Nations. The scientific advisory committee for the conference comprised scientists from Brazil, Canada, France, India, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and of course the United States. Yet, it was a sufficiently uh, motley collection and diverse as well. Nonetheless, the shadow of international politics hovered over the meetings anyway. To take just one typical example, China could not be invited, even though it had a nuclear physics community, since it was not a member of the United Nations at the time. Now, if China were included, it would sort of undermine Taiwan's control of the Chinese seat in the UN, and it would attract more attention to the achievements of communist bloc, than the U.S. and its NATO allies had desired. But of course, Soviet Union was invited and it did send a representative since it did not wish to be seen as a disruptor of peace in the world. However, it had its own cards to play. The USSR decided to hold its own International Atomic Conference just before the UN Conference. Out of a desire to talk about all its contributions to atomic energy research, Uh, the restricted nature of the UN conference would not have given it the liberty to talk about all its achievements at, at the length that it wanted. So, the Soviet Union wanted to gloat and it held its own atomic energy conference shortly before the UN conference. But let's not digress. India had a silver lining. Baba, Hobie Jahangir Baba, was chosen at the president of this very prestigious UN conference. Now, it was an issue of considerable symbolic importance. The United States initially wanted a Swiss national to be the president. The conference, incidentally, was being held at Geneva. But US eventually agreed that it would be the best uh, idea that an avowedly non-partisan figure should be appointed the president. The Indian delegate to the advisory committee, Homi Bhabha, was therefore the least politically objectionable possibility. In India, however, as it was obvious, it was interpreted with great jubilation as a recognition of India's arrival as a major player in the International Atomic Energy Community. As it happened, the conference proved to be a grand success. It soon became clear to the scientists gathered in Geneva that despite the distinct national styles of development, basic research in almost all countries was proceeding along very similar lines. And they had all approximately reached the same point in a number of different countries. In other words, the weight of official secrecy that had been placed on the field of atomic energy research by various countries had neither the desired effect of acquiring results that no one else would have, nor did it have the absolute superiority of one country over others. In other words, everyone realized that the cult of secrecy failed to deliver the desired results in terms of either success or superiority. Another propitious outcome, especially for India, of this conference was Canada. Okay. Let me be clear, Canada decided to break free of its close ties with the US strategic interests. It had now decided to enter the international atomic energy market on its own. One of its earliest decisions in that direction was to offer India one of its NRX research reactors. Now, the intensity with which the idea caught on soon transmuted into enormous leverage attributed to the recipient, that is, India. So this is how it all started. In the third week of March, 1955, um, there was a series of high-level meetings in Ottawa. Now, um, that meeting brought together the Atomic Energy Establishment and senior bureaucrats from the ministries of Finance, Trade, Commerce, and external affairs to try and discuss um, and concretize the Canadian offer to India. Their deliberations were brief, and cabinet approval too came just as quickly. So by the end of March 1955, the Canadians were ready to go. On 5th of April, W.B. Lewis, uh, Vice President of the Atomic Energy Canada Limited, wrote to Bhaba. He wrote about the Canadian interest in helping the Indian Atomic Energy Program, but India was mildly cautious at the time. Within a few months, in July, Baba passed a message to Nehru that he would rather have the more advanced NRU reactor, not the NRX reactor, but the Canadians rejected that option. Lewis uh, once again convinced Haba at the UN conference that the present Canadian offer was the best and that the 40-megawatt NRX reactor was quite suitable for India's purpose at the time. And India did eventually sign that agreement with Canada to build the eponymous Canada-India reactor in September 1955. Now, this was a success... Um, what we call at very little cost. But do understand that a 40-megawatt research reactor, well, better than a 1-megawatt research reactor, is nonetheless not a power reactor. This is where nuclear or atomic energy research in India stood by the mid-1950s. It had faced a great deal of criticism for secrecy, The cult of secrecy had finally to be given up. Nuclear energy facilities had to be made open for international scrutiny and collaboration. There were some genuine positive fruits of that collaboration by way of these two research reactors, Apsara and Canada India reactor by the end of 55. And so finally, however, India was still quite some distance away From building its own power reactor, the bomb was still quite some distance away. And that is the story I propose to tell you in the next episode. The story of nuclear power reactors coming to India and eventually India testing the bomb. That's coming up in the next episode. I'll take your leave here today. I look forward to seeing you next week.